Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Celine, week two of this Who is Jesus series. We are back and we are about to move through the four gospels and look at the life and the ministry of Jesus. I mean, last week, we really focused on the Old Testament. We, we learned that the entire Old Testament is about Jesus. And as we read the beautiful books of the Old Testament, we see many legends in the faith. Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We see Joseph and Moses. We see Daniel. We see King David. We see the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and man, this list, it goes on and on and on. But here's the truth. If we read these books and we, we read about these great men of faith and we don't understand that they all pointed to Jesus, then we will have missed the whole thing. The genealogies point to Jesus. The, the prophecies point to Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. And now we've come to the point where the promised seed from Genesis 3 has come. And we have to grasp something, guys. We've got to understand that Jesus is a historical figure. I mean, so many of us look at the accounts of Jesus's life and we don't actually think about him as a historical figure. I mean, he walked this earth as a human being. And as much as the four gospels are the word of God, we cannot miss the fact that they are also historical accounts. And the four gospels are a window into the life and the ministry of Jesus. And the beauty of the four gospels is how we can see the life of Jesus through the lens of four different writers. And I always say the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are different perspectives of Jesus's life. And I always tell it like this. Imagine if you uh, were standing on a street corner and you, you saw a car accident happen right in front of you. And as you see this accident happen, you, you look to your right and, and there you see, uh, let's say, an attorney who witnessed it. You look to your left and then you, you got a doctor who witnessed it. You look across the street and maybe there's a businessman who witnessed it. And so the police officer arrives and asks each one of us for the story and each one of us give the report. And we all know that these stories and these perspectives, they're going to be very similar, but the details of the story are going to be different. We all saw this accident through a different lens because of who we are and, and because of our, our life experiences, because of our past. I mean, this is the best way that, that I really can describe the four Gospels is they were written by four um, completely different individuals. So you have the four people who saw the life of Jesus all explained with different details and for different reasons. And they all have different motives for writing their perspectives down. And we start with Matthew, who was a Jew. And he writes and reflects Jesus as this coming king, this coming promised Messiah that the Old Testament spoke about. Matthew was a tax collector. And was very detailed. And you can tell with the, the level of detail that you see in his gospel account. Then we got Mark, written by John Mark, who, who shows that Jesus came from Nazareth, demonstrating that Jesus is a servant. 
I mean, this was probably dictated by Peter as this is, this is truly Peter's gospel account. And this explains why the book of Mark is, is more like an action movie. Really, honestly, it's just reflecting Peter's personality. And then you got Luke who shows that Jesus came from Adam, demonstrating that Jesus is the perfect man. And let me point out that Luke didn't actually walk with Jesus. He was writing to Gentile converts. And it is said that he collected information from eyewitnesses and he carefully wrote down what he heard in chronological order. I also point out Luke was a physician. And so we already know that his level of detail is and what he's looking, the lens he's looking through is just very different. And I also want to point out one of the eyewitnesses that he interviewed was a very credible source, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And lastly, we got John who, who shows that Jesus came from heaven, demonstrating that Jesus is God. He is the son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. And his only goal was to point you to the fact that Jesus is God and that you would believe. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're known as the three synoptic gospels. And synoptic simply means to see together. And they present Jesus's life in pretty much the same format. The first three gospels focus more on what Jesus taught and what he did. And John focuses more on who Jesus is. And what is so amazing to me is how many say Jesus did not claim deity. Well, John shows us who Jesus is by highlighting seven miracles, six of these being mentioned in the other three gospels as well. John shows us who Jesus is by allowing Jesus uh, to speak for himself in seven dramatic I am statements. And who did Jesus claim to be? Well, it was Jesus who said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, I am the son of man, which was Jesus um, emphasizing his humanity. But the way he used it, guys, it was a claim to divinity. Yes, it was these I am statements that let us know who he was claiming to be. And what Jesus is saying when he refers to himself as the I am is, is that he's God. Because you got to remember last week when we, we talked about in the book of Exodus, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, remember he told Moses to go to Egypt and free his people to free the Israelites and Moses thinking of how insurmountable this seemed, how ridiculous this, this request seemed. He asked God, when I get there, God, who should I tell him sent me? And God tells Moses, you tell him that I am sent you. Yes, I am. It refers to, uh, to God. Friends, there is no doubt that Jesus was claiming to be God. And so now that we, we've cleared that up, let's just take a look at the prophecies from the Old Testament of this coming Messiah and see how Jesus' birth, um, his life, his death, his resurrection line up and fulfill those prophecies. And just to name a few, Matthew says that the Messiah was, was born of a woman, uh, that he came from, from the line of Abraham, uh, that, that he was a descendant of Jacob, that he was a Nazarene, that he was called Emmanuel, which means God with us, uh, that he was declared the son of God, that he spoke in parables. And then you got Luke who said that the Messiah was a descendant of Isaac. He was coming from the tribe of Judah, that he was born of a virgin, that he healed the brokenhearted, that his throne is anointed and eternal. It was Mark who, who spoke of this Messiah as, as this king. 
you got John who, who, who said that he would be rejected by his own people. Yes, according to the Gospels, guys, Jesus is the Messiah. These same men that, that walked with Jesus, they, they heard Jesus, they, they ate with Jesus, they cried with Jesus. They spent 24-7 with him for three and a half years. I mean, I would say that they, they have credibility. And, and you remember last week we ended the, you know, the first episode with, with, the, with the, the prophecy from, from Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant, the one who would lay down his life for his people. There was nothing majestic about him, nothing to attract us to him, despised, rejected, the, the one that we turned our backs on, the one that would be pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten, whipped so that we could be healed, oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. Led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was struck down for the rebellion of our pride. He'd done no wrong and he'd never deceived anyone. He was buried like a criminal and put in a rich man's grave. The one who bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Yes, the one that Isaiah speaks of is Jesus Christ. Guys, it's plain to see. Just open the New Testament. All of this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was wrongly accused. He was arrested. He, he was chained up. He was beaten almost to death and then put on the stake, flogged. He was whipped. He's mocked. He spit on. Then made to carry the cross to the hill he, he, that he created. Guys, the creator of the universe. The hill he created where he would lay down his life for the, the very world he created. The creation. Guys, us. Friends, this to me, it's just, it's absolute insanity. And it doesn't make sense why he would do this, but it's what had to happen because there was no other way for us to be reconciled to God. There was no other way back to God. Guys, sinners, we can't be in God's presence. God cannot be around sinners. And someone had to die for the sins of the world. And that someone had to be a perfect and holy human being in order to fulfill the requirement. And since there would never be a sinless human, God had to, had to come as one. Enter Jesus, the only sinless man to walk the earth. Why? Well, I don't know. He's God. That's why. The perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God would come to be the final sacrifice for all, laying down his life. And whoever would believe in him and surrender their life to him would find salvation and abundant life. And I think of those who question Jesus. I mean, they question if he knew who he was. Like he was having some sort of identity crisis. Well, guys, let's just look at what Jesus said in John 10. Jesus said, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. In other words, it, it may look to bystanders, as though Jesus was a victim of betrayal, he was a victim of conspiracy, um, of, of, uh, a victim of, of mob violence, of mock trials, and, and you know that fickle governor Pontius Pilate. But what Jesus is saying here is, is I'm in charge. No, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I take it up. He was a sovereign sacrifice. I mean, Jesus was in charge of when he died. He was in charge of how he died and. He was in charge of when he rose from death. Why? Well, because he's God and he can do anything he desires. And what he desired, guys, was to give you and I 
a chance to be in right standing with him. And the only way that was happening was through his death and his resurrection. Because praying enough can't, can't save us. Our good deeds can't save us. All these false prophets and these false gods, they can't save us. Jesus and him alone. His blood shed for us is what gave him victory. And it's what gives you and I victory. The blood of Jesus. Guys, bottom line is this. That there are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Too many to discuss in this setting. But as I always say, guys, you, you get the picture. The chances of Jesus fulfilling what he fulfilled and is yet to fulfill is impossible. Impossible with man. But with God, all things are possible. With Jesus, all things are possible. The promised seed had finally come. Because Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He showed us the intentions of God. He showed us the heart of God. And then he was crucified and rose three days later, striking Satan's head, defeating sin and death. And it was Jesus who said it is finished. That promise that God made in the garden from Genesis 3, it came to fruition in the promised seed, Jesus. Because he would strike Satan with the death blow. It is finished. I mean, this was Jesus' last words before he breathed his last breath. And it was Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, her sister, Mary Magdalene, and then John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that were, that were present at the foot of the cross. And they had followed Jesus from the place where he was condemned to death by Pilate. They heard the people ruthlessly chanting, crucify him, crucify him. They saw Jesus chained up. They saw him whipped and flogged. They followed Jesus as he carried the cross to Calvary where, where Jesus was mocked. He was kicked. He, he was spit on. They saw him come to that point of exhaustion where, you know, where he dropped the cross, fell to, you know, fell on the dirt. He could no longer carry the cross. And then this, this bystander, Simon of Cyrene, would reluctantly step up as he was made by the Roman guard to carry it the rest of the way to Golgotha. They watched Jesus be placed on the cross. They saw the nails driven through his hands and feet. They saw Jesus suffer and die. I mean, this was it. These were pretty much the only Jesus supporters present. And so the question I always ask is, well, what happened to the multitudes? What happened to the fame and all the popularity? I mean, Jesus once had thousands of people following him around. I mean, what happened to the disciples that had promised that they, they would never leave Jesus' side even unto death? They deserted him. Everyone deserted him even after Jesus told them they would. And from the time that, that Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane and was arrested, he was alone. I mean, his ministry, it started off hot. And there were a lot of followers and lots of people who wanted to be a part of the miracles, part of the healings. They looked forward to the, to the free meals. But when it came to the Son of Man having to walk the road to Calvary and suffer, everyone, including his closest friends, left. But why? I mean, why, why would they desert their Messiah? I mean, I think we can easily say, well, man, they lost faith. But, but I... I don't know if that was truly the case. I think it was more about the fact that they had no idea who Jesus was. I mean, most or pretty much all Jews in his day had this idea of this coming Messiah being this conquering king. They thought this Messiah was going to come and save God's people from Roman oppression and establish an earthly kingdom. I mean, they, the picture that they had of, of the Messiah was, was temporal. It wasn't, it wasn't eternal. But this was, was far from God's intention. This wasn't his intention at all. 
Guys, God had a different plan. If this wasn't his intention, then what was? Well, Jesus told us. I mean, let's see what Jesus said, because he made it very clear. It was Jesus who said, I came not to abolish the law, but what? But to fulfill it. It was Jesus who said, for, for this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It was Jesus who said, hey, let us go to the towns nearby so that I may preach. That is what I came for. It was Jesus who said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It was Jesus who said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Guys, the king of the world, the king of the universe, the creator of all things came to be a slave and a servant for his creation. Let that sink in. If you're not undone by that, man, you don't have a pulse. It was Jesus who said the son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And the last thing Jesus said was for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So based on scriptures, it's clear why Jesus came. Jesus knew why he came. He knew his why. And that why carried him all the way to death. He was obedient to the, to the point of death. That redemption plan that God began in the Garden of Eden thousands of years ago that we discussed last week. Yes, this was God's plan to come as the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. And this is the only way that the mission could have been accomplished. And guess what? Everyone missed it. And what's even worse is the disciples who spent three and a half years walking with Jesus, watching him heal people, watching him raise the dead, watching him walk on water, watching him feed the 10,000. They missed it. And you know what? Before you go pointing the finger at them, you would have missed it too. And so would I. But the reality is, is that in Jesus's worst hours, his closest friends deserted him. They ran, guys like cowards. Even Peter, who had a few hours prior to Jesus' arrest, told him he would die for him. He would never leave his side. And just as Jesus predicted, Peter ran and then would deny even knowing Jesus. But the question for me still remains, why would these followers of his do this? Was it the fear? Was it doubt? Was it the lack of understanding of who Jesus really was? Man, I don't even know. But what I do know is this, they were hiding. Why? Because they were guilty by association. They were enemy number one and they feared for their lives. They knew they were guilty for being in the midst of Jesus for the last three and a half years and being his, you know, his, his homie. <laughs> they were next to be destroyed. They were terrified and they wanted nothing to do with this so-called Messiah. And to be honest, I'm sure with all the inner turmoil they experienced, I'm sure they were at a complete loss. And at some point, I feel like they probably regretted putting all their eggs in the, in the Jesus basket. So for the next few days, they stayed in hiding, avoiding being seen in public in, in fear of what would happen. And it would be early uh, Sunday morning while it was still dark that Mary Magdalene, it says the scriptures say that she would come to the tomb. And I find it interesting that Mary would be the one showing up at Jesus' tomb. I mean, you mean to tell me that not one of his manly disciples, not even these manly fishermen, would, would want to come and see? I mean, they maybe wouldn't want to walk with her to protect her. 
No, the scriptures say that she and some other women came to properly anoint the dead body of Jesus. So this tells me a few things. The disciples were still hiding and had no plan on coming out. And Mary and the other women, they expected to find a dead body. Again, this reveals that all of Jesus' followers didn't know who Jesus was. So the women show up to see that the stone had been rolled away and Jesus' body wasn't there. So they immediately ran back to where the disciples were and told them what they'd found. And the scriptures say that the women tell them that Lord's body had been taken out of the tomb. In other words, they had no idea who Jesus was. None of them could grasp what had happened. So it says that Peter and John took off in a foot race to get to the tomb. And the scriptures state that they both looked in and they, 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 they saw that Jesus was gone, but only one, John, saw and he finally believed. Well, what does that mean? What it tells me is that John might have been the first disciple to believe that Jesus had risen from death. And it says to me that he finally understood what Jesus had been saying for the last three and a half years. But Peter didn't because it says that Peter went back to where he was and stayed in hiding. But Mary stays around. Um, she stands outside the tomb looking in and she's just weeping. She's weeping because Jesus is gone. And as she turns around, she sees a man that she doesn't recognize. And she hears this man talking, saying, dear woman, why are you crying? What, who are you looking for? And it says that she thought it was the gardener. I mean, she was pretty much probably out of her mind at this point. And then she heard her name, Mary. And it was that voice, the voice of the Lord. And it says she turned around, she dropped to her knees and she worshiped him. It was the risen Jesus. Mary saw him alive and all the people that he chose to show himself to was a woman. Guys, think about this. In Jewish culture, women were like third-class citizens. They didn't matter, okay? And it says that Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene. And at this point, he commands her to go tell his brothers what she's seen. So the first thing that I notice here, and I have to ask myself is, what do you mean his brothers? I mean, how could Jesus even refer to these guys as his brothers after what they did? I mean, these same brothers that had deserted him in his most vulnerable hours. But guys, isn't this the grace of Jesus? Isn't this how good our God is, how patient he is? He never gives up on us. Even in our worst, in our, even in our, our failures and, and, and our lack of faith and lack of commitment, he's there. So Mary does as she's told. She runs back. She tells the brothers. She shows up and tells them, and, and they still don't believe. And at this point, I, I, I see Mary's getting it. I see John's getting it but the rest of the disciples are not getting it. And it was that Sunday evening that the disciples were, were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. They were still hiding in fear. But at this point, something happened. And this was the moment that it all changed. Suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. I mean, imagine this. You're, you're in the room hiding for your life. I mean, your best friend has just been murdered. Your entire life is in, in, in turmoil. Now the authorities are looking for you with the same goal. They want to get rid of you. I mean, and all of a sudden, your once dead friend just appears in physical form, standing right in front of you, and then proceeds to say, peace be with you. And then takes it next level and shows you his wounds in his hands, in his feet, in his side. I mean, guys, this was it. These disciples at this point had seen the resurrected Jesus standing there in bodily form. 
And the Bible says they would go on to spend the next five, six weeks hanging out with Jesus, eating with Jesus, learning from Jesus, being empowered by him for the mission that Jesus was about to leave them with. And not only the 11, but over 500 others saw the risen Jesus. So now we've come to this point. We've come to the point where Jesus' disciples have now come to the reality that their best friend, who was arrested and brutally murdered in front of them, has risen from death. And I know it is important to take a little bit of a detour so we can take a deep dive into the resurrection and the importance of it. I mean, what does the resurrection mean for Christianity? Guys, it means everything. Everything that we believe hinges on, on this. So I need you to, to listen carefully. I need you to grasp what I'm about to walk through because this is important. Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. And check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? I find it unbelievable that we learn in grade school about historical figures such as Julius Caesar, um, Napoleon Bonaparte, Leonardo da Vinci, George Washington, Abe Lincoln. And man, we just so easily believe what we're told. We don't even ask questions. We don't research. We don't even flinch. We just believe what our teachers have taught us. We believe everything the history books say. Yet when it comes to the historical figure, Jesus Christ, we, we may believe that he was here on earth. We may believe he was a good teacher. We may believe he was crucified. But when we're told he's, he rose from death, you know, most of the world can't get on board when this historical fact is, is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history. Yes, guys, I'm telling you, there is evidence. And it's evidence that we must see and grasp and take serious because Jesus' resurrection, as I mentioned before, is the most important event in the history of the world. And when we look at the evidence, the truth of the resurrection emerges very clearly as the best explanation. We don't even need to assume that the New Testament is inspired by God or even trustworthy. While I'm convinced that the New Testament is inspired by God and, and that, it's an, that it's trustworthy, I want to focus on the truths that even critical scholars can admit. In other words, these truths are so strong that they're accepted by serious historians of all stripes, not, not, not just Christians like myself. So to begin, let, let's just look at the empty tomb. Okay, well, what is the evidence that the tomb Jesus was buried in was discovered empty by a group of women on the Sunday after the, the crucifixion? Well, first, the resurrection was preached in the same city where Jesus had been arrested, uh, where he had been flogged, where he had been tortured and crucified and, and, and buried in. Okay, the, the disciples didn't go 
to some obscure place where no one had heard of Jesus to begin preaching about the resurrection. But instead, they began preaching right in Jerusalem, the very city where Jesus was crucified, where he was put in a grave. And guys, they could not have done this if, if Jesus was still in the tomb. I mean, no one would be foolish enough to believe a man had been raised from the dead, from the dead if the tomb wasn't empty. This resurrection proclamation wouldn't have lasted an hour, let alone you know, over 2,000 years. Second, remember those, those Jewish leaders who were opposed to Jesus? The, the ones who had him crucified? The ones who absolutely opposed the, and wanted to wipe off the planet, this new movement called the Way? Well, if you go to Matthew 28, verse 11, it, it says that the Roman guards came and told these Jewish leaders what had happened, that the tomb was empty, that Jesus wasn't there. And, and the Jewish leaders came together and they come up with a plan to pay those Roman guards to tell the story that the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. I mean, these Jewish leaders here are admitting the significant truth that the tomb was empty and they had, they attempted uh, to explain it away. And why, why is this important? Well, the, the Jewish leaders, guys, they, they weren't, they were hostile witnesses. Okay, why would they admit that the tomb was empty unless the evidence was too strong to be denied? So in essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly not in their favor, the fact is, is, is most likely genuine. Third, this empty tomb account in the Gospel of Mark is based upon a source that originated within, within a few years of the event. So, so this places the evidence for the empty tomb way too early to be legendary. This isn't some like myth or some made-up story. So that, this makes it much more likely to be accurate. Fourth, the tomb was discovered empty by women. I said this earlier. Why is this important? They were third-class citizens. Nobody listened to them. Nobody took them serious. Testimony of women in the first century, Jewish culture was considered worthless. And the fact that despised women, whose testimony was deemed worthless, were the chief witnesses to the fact that the empty tomb can only be plausibly explained if, like it or not, they actually you know, were the discoverers of this empty tomb. And the fact that their testimonies were even written down and have survived all this time, guys, it's a, it's a very, very big deal. So again, understanding culture in that, in that context is so important. Next, guys, there is the evidence that Jesus' disciples had real experience, real interactions with one who they believed was the, the, the risen Christ. And to, to me, this one just is hard to dispute because we have a testimony of the original disciples themselves that they saw Jesus alive again. And now with that being said, I do realize that just because the disciples think they saw Jesus doesn't auto automatically mean that they really did. And what happens is I, I see three possible alternatives here. And I want to walk through these. So, so one, they were either lying, two, hallucinating, or three, they, they really saw Jesus alive. So which one of these is most likely? Well, let's just look at each alternative and let's figure out which one is most reasonable. Were they lying? On this view, the disciples knew that Jesus hadn't really risen, but they made up the story about the resurrection. Okay, why, why would 10 of the disciples willingly die as martyrs for their belief in the resurrection? I mean, guys, people will often die for a lie that they believe is, is the truth. But if Jesus didn't rise and, and they knew this, then they, they wouldn't have just been dying for a lie they mistakenly believed was true. They would have been dying for a lie they knew was a lie. I mean, come on. 
Let's just get real. Like, who would die for that? So I think you and I can agree that they, they weren't lying. Because of the, the absurdity of this thought, we can all admit, at least the disciples, disciples believed that they saw the risen Jesus. So the next thing, were they hallucinating? Guys, the disciples record eating and drinking with Jesus as well as touching him. I mean, this can't be done with hallucinations. Second, it is highly unlikely that they would all have had the same hallucination. I mean, think about this. All 500 or more eyewitnesses hallucinated. I mean, guys, hallucinations, they're, they're highly individual. They're, they're not group projections. Furthermore, this hallucination theory cannot explain the conversion of Paul three years later. I mean, was Paul the, the, the Christian killer so hoping to see the resurrected Jesus that his mind invented the appearance as well? And most significantly, the hallucination theory cannot even deal with the evidence of the empty tomb. So I, I think it's safe to say that they were not hallucinating. And since the disciples could not have been lying, since they were not hallucinating, we only have one possible explanation left. The disciples believed they had seen the risen Jesus because they really saw the risen Jesus. I mean, this is a compelling testimony of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. I mean, Paul says, go ask these people who saw the resurrected Jesus. Like these people were alive when Paul was, was, was walking the earth. I mean, it's not just a handful of self-deluded souls. There are literally hundreds who saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. There really were 500 or more followers of Jesus before his ascension. Though, though Acts 1 only mentions 120, if you go to Matthew 28, it mentions Jesus meeting with 500 plus in the region of Galilee. Guys, they knew Jesus rose from death. And here's the deal, man. As Christians, we, we often sing this song like, yeah, you know, we know Jesus lives because he lives in, in our hearts. I mean, to the average person that doesn't believe, man, they, they, they think we sound ridiculous. And I just want to point out, guys, this is not the best way to prove Jesus lives. We know he lives because there's historical evidence. We don't have to sing that Jesus lives in our hearts. We can straight, bold face say that he rose from death and that is why he lives. And this evidence demands that we believe in the resurrection of Christ. So if we can believe anything in history, if we can believe in George Washington, if we can believe in Napoleon Bonaparte, we can believe, believe in Julius Caesar, guys, we can believe in the reliable, confirmed testimony of these eyewitnesses. Jesus rose from death. It's a plain and simple understanding of these evidences that I just mentioned, the resurrection of Christ that destroys all of these theories. And it shows they, they take far more faith to believe than this biblical account that I'm sharing with you. But what, what is the importance of the resurrection? I mean, why, why does our faith hinge on this truth? I mean, why, why, why does it matter? I mean, don't most of us just look at the Bible as some old dusty piece of history that has no relevance in our lives? I mean, I'll say that the resurrection is the most important truth in the world and the implications, guys, are heavy to say the least. Why? Well, first, the resurrection proves that, that the claims Jesus made about himself are true. So what did Jesus claim? Guys, he claimed to be God, okay? And there are people who say he didn't. But it's impossible to get around the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. I already touched on this earlier about what Jesus said about himself. But, it, you know, if Jesus would, it's, would have stayed dead in the tomb, I mean, well, it would be foolish to believe this claim. 
But since he rose from death, it would be foolish not to believe it. This resurrection, it proves that, that what Jesus said about himself is true. He's fully God and he's fully man. Second, have you ever wondered what reasons there are to believe in the Bible? I mean, is it really inspired by God or is it just a, a bunch of myths and legends? Well, the resurrection of Jesus answers this question. If he rose from the dead, then this validate, validates all of his claims. And if Jesus is God, he speaks with absolute certainty and final authority. Therefore, what he says about the Bible is true. Friends, surely we would accept the testimony of one who rose from death over the testimony of someone who will one day die himself. And what did Jesus say about the Bible? Guys, he said the Bible is inspired by God and it, that it's absolute truth. So I'm going to accept the testimony of Jesus, the one who defeated sin and death, over any opinions of any other human being on this planet. Third, many people are confused by the many different religions in the world. Are they all from God? I mean, you often hear, there are many roads to God. But with closer examination, we see that they all cannot be from God because they all contradict each other. And we also see that there is only one way to God. For example, Christianity is the only religion that believes Jesus is both God and man. Every single other religion say he was a good man, but he wasn't God. And clearly, both claims can't be right. Someone's wrong, okay? And how do we know which is correct? Well, by a simple test. Which religion gives the best evidence for its truth? Well, in light of Jesus rising from death, guys, I think that Christianity has the best reasons behind it. I mean, Jesus is the only religious leader who has risen from the, from the dead. All of the religious leaders in all of history, dead, in the tombs. I mean, guys, they're just bones and dirt. And because of this truth, we must accept what Jesus said. And what Jesus said was, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, simply put, unless you surrender to Christ and make him Lord, you will not inherit eternal, eternal life. You will not inherit eternity with God, period. Unless you surrender your life to Christ, you remain destined for misery and hell. And I don't care how much this statement offends you. I love you enough to tell you this. Fourth, the resurrection of Christ proves God will judge the world one day. It was the Apostle Paul who said, God is now declaring to men that all should repent because he has fixed the day which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having proven to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus proves something very serious and significant to us. We will each have to give an account of ourselves to a holy God. And if we're honest, we all have to admit that we just don't measure up to his standard. Therefore, we need Jesus. And this leads to the fifth and final point, some really good news. The resurrection of Jesus provides genuine hope for eternal life. Real hope, my friends. Why? Well, because Jesus says that by trusting him, we will be forgiven for our sins and we will escape being condemned at judgment. The Bible doesn't say that Christ rose from death and leaves us wondering why he did it. The scriptures tell us why. He, he did this because we're sinners and because we've sinned and we're, we're deserving of God's judgment. And since God is just, he cannot simply let our sins go. And the penalty for our sins must be paid. And the good news is that God, out of his love, became a man named Jesus in order to pay the penalty for sinners. On the cross, Jesus died in our place you know, for the mission of the fact that we would come to believe in that. 
He took the very death we deserve. And his resurrection proves that his mission to conquer sin was successful. It proves that he is Savior who's not only willing, but able to deliver us from the wrath of God that's coming on the day of judgment. The forgiveness that Jesus died and rose to provide is given to those who trust in him for salvation in the future. My friends, I, I end by reminding you that Jesus volunteered for this. He chose it. It was not forced on him by any man. Remember, he said in John 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative, my own accord. I mean, do you, do you really think Herod and Pilate and the mobs and the soldiers were in charge? They were just players in the drama. But God wrote the drama. I mean, this was Jesus' role, and he, he would be crucified, and he would rise. And it was Jesus' choice, not Pilate's, not the Jewish leader's. I mean, this is what Jesus was saying to us. And all he said came to be. And it, there's a name for it. It's called love. Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, he died for us. And he did this for the joy that would, was set before him. Guys, I mean, th this is everything that Jesus came for. And everything he spoke, it came to be. And everything that's yet to happen will come to be. Guys, God has never lied. Everything he said has happened and is still to happen. And so I, I leave you with this. Believing in the resurrection, it means that God is for us. The resurrection of Jesus is God's declaration to Israel and to the world that we cannot work our way to glory or, or to right standing with him, but that he intends to do the impossible to get us there. The resurrection is the promise of God that all who trust in Jesus will be beneficiaries of God's power to lead us in paths of righteousness and through the valley of death. Therefore, believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is much more than accepting a fact. It means being confident that God is for you, that he is transforming your life, that he will save you for eternal joy. Believing in the resurrection it means trusting in all the promises of life and hope for which it stands. It means being so confident in God's power uh, and love that no fear of worldly loss or greed for worldly gain will lure us to disobey his will. I mean, just look at all that, all the, the, of Jesus' followers after they came to realize all of this truth. I mean, look at their examples as you read the book of Acts and all the epistles. Again, this is historical facts, and God is calling us to follow in their footsteps. And I just want to take a, a brief minute just to talk about them. After Jesus' resurrection, all of Jesus' followers became aggressive. They became bold, became a people who were full of joy. And Peter is a prime example. I mean, he was one who had earlier denied the Lord to this lowly servant girl. But after the resurrection... He stood in the temple courts defying the very men who put Jesus on the cross, the, one, the men that he was hiding from all weekend. Just think about that. And they would come and they would kick him out of the temple. And what did he do? He came back. And upon defying them, he was flogged and thrown into prison. And when he was released, where do you think he went? You think he went home and quit? No, the scriptures say he went right back to the very place he was told not to go and began preaching Jesus immediately. Guys, when you observe the, the, the disciples um, post-resurrection, you see they had life. You, you see that their circumstances didn't matter. That they had joy in the midst of suffering and peace in the midst of turmoil. Nothing could take away the passion arising from the everlasting life they'd received from Christ. 
The disciples believed so much in the resurrection that they gave their lives to sharing this news. And the first to die was James, the brother of John, who was killed by the sword upon the, the order of King Herod. I mean, church tradition holds that John miraculously survived the sword, I mean, survived being put in the cauldron of boiling water, and then later was exiled to the island of Patmos. Peter was, was crucified upside down. Matthew was slain by the sword in a distant city in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, then beaten to death with a blacksmith's tool. Bartholomew, skinned alive, Andrew, bound to the cross, and, and he preached to his persecutors until he died. Mark died in Alexandria, in Egypt, after being cruelly dragged through the city. And so I ask you, Christians, would you have died for a lie? I mean, would these disciples have endured such persecution for a dead man? I mean, would they have given their lives up for Jesus the way they did for nothing? No. Why? Well, because they saw the risen Jesus. They gave their very lives in service to him. They were no longer afraid of death because they, they'd found the true meaning of life. They were transformed. And they were transformed by this truth. The very truth I'm sharing with you today. I could keep going on and on about these disciples and how they all went to their death for Jesus, but I don't want to focus so much on that. I mean, there are many who die in the name of their faith. And as impressive as that is, I think what's more impressive is giving up the world for your faith. I mean, the world says you only live once. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And in Christianity, we call that denying the flesh, denying what we want for what God wants to draw all people to himself. And he does that through his people. People who want to give up their lives to pursue kingdom is what he desires. Yet it is impressive that these disciples died for Jesus. But what's more impressive to me is how they live for him. They lived sold out. They lived reckless and selfless and they lived transformed. They lived grace-filled. They loved sacrificially. They gave sacrificially. They served sacrificially. And guys, this just doesn't happen by itself. This is not the way humans are wired. We are, we are wired to pursue our own interest. And in order for our interest to radically change, we must be transformed. We, we must be reprogrammed. These disciples were transformed. And I, and I think the day they saw the risen Jesus and realized um, he, he was who he said he was, everything changed. I mean, friends, does not this whole story of God and creation and sin and Christ and salvation help make more sense out of more things in this world from beginning to end than any other version of reality? I mean, who is Jesus? He is God and he came to die for you so that you could have life and be freed. So you could be reconciled to God. I mean, this is the glory of Jesus. He is the arrival in history of God's final glorious renovation of all things, including our bodies. I mean, just as Jesus was raised, so you will be raised from the dead and shine like the sun in the kingdom of, of your father. Jesus is coming back to earth in power and great glory. And he's coming soon. And this event and this story and what I've just shared is a window onto that glory. So my question for you is, have you received this free gift of salvation? And have you surrendered your life to him? And I ask you this because eternal things hang in the balance. Eternal life hangs in the balance. Your identity hangs in the balance. 
My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Salim. Come back next week as, as we begin to focus on the hard teachings of Jesus. And for the remainder of the season, we will take a deep dive into all of what Jesus taught his followers. Guys, he said a lot of things, a lot of things that are hard to digest, a lot of things that are hard to understand. But one thing I know is this, he loves us. He, he died for us. He, he showed us the way. He has expectations and, and a mission for all who would surrender to him. And what does this mean for us? Guys, we, we, we need to continually be asking ourselves the question, what, what does this story of God mean to us and what does it mean for us? Who, who are we in light of God? Friends, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus and you're following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You are chosen. You, you are a royal priest. You're part of a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. You, you've been called out of darkness and into his, his glorious light. You've been called out of the grave and into his wonderful light, into life. And now you're to be a bold proclaimer of this glory. Do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, it's okay. Most are not. But come back next week because the point of this, this podcast is to walk this journey together. And I'm just here to tell you, I'm currently learning myself. But together, we're going to learn our identity in Christ and we're, we're going to step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. Until next time, take care.